Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today's a real joy for me because I have my friend Claire Dew with us. Claire is the co-founder and CEO of the Achievers Circle, which is a newer initiative in China, very exciting about the future of China, but it's actually, it's actually rooted in her whole career and what Claire has done up until today. So welcome to the caring economy, Claire. Hi, thank you so much, Toby. Well, um, hello everybody, wherever you are, um, I'm sending my greetings from Beijing, China. Um, well, I'm very honored and humbled to be here and then having a conversation with Toby. I've known Toby for many years, actually. We've done a lot of very interesting cross-cultural, cross-border projects together. Um, we share a lot of passions um, together on social philanthropy, impact investments, and you know, education. So um, again, and I'm extremely honored to be here and just to share some of the stories together. And um, I also want to learn from, from Toby, yeah. And we also have such great friends in common that we've introduced each other to and in China and in the US and elsewhere. Yes, definitely, definitely. You've introduced me to so many amazing people and that totally has opened up you know, uh, a whole new world for me. So I'm extremely appreciative of our friendship. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah. And this whole concept of the caring economy is actually something that I also personally care about. So I um, would like to learn more about it. Well, uh, let's start, Claire, as we always do with our guests here on the caring economy, and just talk a little bit about you and your personal journey. Um, you know, from growing up in mainland China, making your way to school, maybe even touch upon some of the the pivots that you made when maybe your peers went left and you went right, or maybe you got, you know, a hard hit and it made you stronger. So give us that quick sort of, uh, you know, a couple minutes of your overview of your career journey, please. Sure, yeah. Um, so I was born and raised in central China, southern China actually, um, and then um, went to a public school and then I got the chance uh, my high school actually was affiliated with Yale University, affiliated with the Yale in China Association. So back in 2003, wow, that was like, I feel like that's ages ago. Right. Uh, we learned the, we learned about the opportunity of going to the United States for undergraduate studies. That was actually very new at that time because um, China-US relations were um, not as developed as it is today. And then there were, you know, very few Chinese students who actually would make it to the United States for undergraduate studies. So I was um, one of the pioneers who um, decided not to pursue my undergraduate studies in China, but in the United, but instead in the United States, I took the TOEFL, um, studied hard, and then had an opportunity and honor to be studying at Carleton College in Minnesota, Northfield, Minnesota. And then, and yeah, so I came back, I came to the United States when I was 18 in the, in, in, at the age of, um, um, in the year of 2004. Um, and at Carleton, I decided to do, um, at first I thought that I was just gonna be, an, you know, like a typical, stereotypical Chinese students who would major in math and sciences or really um, economics and stuff like that. But I think um, I had a very um, wild heart in that way. 
I just realized that I, my heart, my passion wasn't really in the sciences or, you know, natural sciences or economics or math. My, my heart and passion was in the humanities and social sciences. So I took the liberty of becoming the first Chinese students who ever majored in history. In um, in, yeah, at Carleton, because yeah. normally, you know, well, there were not a lot of Chinese students back then anyway, but I definitely was the first one that decided to go against everyone's wish and became a history major instead. Um, and later on, I added another major, um, international relations. So I graduated from Carleton uh, with honor, um, like both um, history and international relations, double major. Uh, was supposed to go to graduate school for to pursue further on my academics. However, I decided to also just take a break and then come back to China because that's also when the Olympics, uh, Beijing Olympics was happening. Mm -hmm. So I came back to China. Um, I had a very interesting job of, of working with my professor at Carleton to do um, research on China-Africa relations during the Cultural Revolution. And then, so I was at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and stuff like that, and it was really fun. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I decided to, um, so one of the, one of the interesting um, situation that I was in was, I came back to, uh, to China with the sense of pride that I went to Carleton College, uh, one mm -hmm. of the most prestigious schools in the United States. However, when I came back, people's, people's understanding of liberal arts colleges was, was pretty much non-existent. Yes. They did not know what a liberal arts college was. They had no idea what the American education system was. Mm -hmm. So um, eventually I decided to create my, to establish my own nonprofit organization called China Liberal Arts College Tour. Mm -hmm. um, so our organization now has been running since 2009 and we became the largest private a grassroots platform between China and the United States on the education and cultural exchanges because every year we organize, well, before COVID in particular, we would organize road shows for more than 20 um, liberal arts colleges to come to China for their admissions officers or vice presidents of admissions to come to China. We connect them with parents, high schools, students, uh, completely free of charge. Um, so our mission was we wanted people to understand what liberal arts colleges are and also what a liberal arts education really means because I was a beneficiary of this very prestigious and superior uh, type of education that allowed me to pursue my own passion um, that gave me a lot of freedom to get to know who I am as a person. Yeah. So Claire, let me ask you for, because you and I are very familiar with international education. We both studied and worked abroad, um, but give our viewers, or our listeners rather, a sense of the scale here. I mean, the volume of mainland Chinese students studying abroad is significant to any. It's significant. Well, our events every year uh, in the past, we would have, well, so we would do probably like a two week prop, two week roadshow, mm -hmm. and we'll go to like four cities. And um, in total, every year we would be meeting about five thousand students and parents, mm -hmm. um, doing our, you know, doing our um, roadshows and presentations and um, and workshops. Mm -hmm. um, so we've definitely 
um, have brought the whole concept of liberal arts college to China, to Chinese parents. And then I was very proud that there were many very good students. There were like a lot of students who would come back and say, hey, I got admitted to Duke or to you know Princeton or to um, Columbia University, but I think I am going to a liberal arts college because I believe that type of uh, smaller environments would suit me better. Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of um, this kind of a change is significant because um, I mean I'm sure those kids will do well no matter where. Um, but it's that sense of self-awareness mm -hmm. and self-identity that's been awakened um, throughout the process that really inspired me. Yeah. Our yeah. whole mission has always been, you don't have to choose to come to the United States or come to liberal arts, but you should at least be informed that there are opportunities and there are institutions that would suit you instead of following what everybody else was doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I would say, as you know, I went to a small liberal arts college as well, Hampton Sydney College in Virginia. And I so believe in small liberal arts colleges because they allow us to be more complete citizens, right? You don't just go into one major or one building and that's your whole career at your undergraduate institution. In fact, you're meant to be on a sport and in student government and, you know, maybe a resident advisor. So I think even for Americans, that holds true. I do wonder, Claire, when you made that choice to study history, which I also studied as a major, um, yes. how, how is it different today, do you think, for the Claire Dew of today, who's going off to a small college in the United States, versus when you were there? And do you think that, um, that the peer pressure is still as great as ever, or the expectations on a young Chinese student to conform to that stereotypical engineering, math, science type major? I think um, times have definitely changed. Um, well, I mean, most of the students coming from China to the United States are still under a lot of pressure of, um, of, of the stereotypical Asian dream, right? Becoming a doctor, becoming a lawyer, or becoming a financer. So that is a very you know, stereotypical Asian um, career choice. Um, I think at that time for me, um, I just knew that I would not really enjoy those type of um, activities or those type of studies anyway. Um, and then I, I, was, I was very miserable. I think I was very miserable studying economics. Um, I was very good at math, but I didn't really enjoy it. So throughout the process, I realized that uh, there are things that you're just absolutely bad at. Okay, so for me, economics or physics, these kinds of uh, things, which is I'm, I'm just not naturally good at. And there are things that you are very good at, but you hate, such as math. Like I was, I was a straight A student in math, but I just hated every time when I was given the problem sets, I was just like, oh, please kill myself. Like I, I, I can't do another thing. <laughs> and then of course, there are things that you are very good at and enjoy doing. And that's where I found um, my passion in history. Mm -hmm. I was just naturally very good at uh, studying history. And also I was just very much enjoying the whole process of forming my own identities, forming my own opinions, trying to argue with others. And also a funny thing is I actually studied Chinese history uh, in the United States. 
everybody was like, oh, Claire, you must be a slacker because how can you be uh, studying Chinese history as a Chinese student? That's, that's cheating. And to be very honest, it was a harder than anything else because I came to the United States with my brain filled with knowledge taught in China with a particular Marxist methodology and ideology. So a lot of the things that I knew about China was already pre-installed in my mind, right? And then you come to the United States um, and in the very liberal progressive US methodology, there were a lot of things that are just would counter what you have learned in the past. Mm -hmm. So throughout this process, it was actually very painfully you know, pleasing because um, you have to, I had to really form my own identity and also my own analysis mm -hmm. because of course, not everything that China has taught was correct. Mm -hmm. And also not everything that America has taught uh, that that is taught in America is correct because many of them would, you know, be out of the context of China, right? That's so true. that really helps me form my own value system. And also it really helps me now with um, a lot of my work on cross-border and cross-cultural communication because I realize that um, a lot of the misunderstanding between China and the United uh, and in the world, not just in the United, not just the United States, is that the Chinese were so uh, stubborn on their own way of describing their problems without understanding how to make their uh, statements more easily understandable by the rest of the world, mm -hmm. because they don't even understand, they don't even know what the rest of the world actually you know, think about it. But at the same time, they also do not know what the problems are um, in, a, in the Western world when they portray China because the West also is not accurate 100% because they, many of them have never been to China or they have never really studied China uh, intensively. Mm -hmm. So there was this huge vacuum on both sides. One would be lacking the understanding of the conversations or the methodology and what would be under the lacking, uh, the lack of understanding of the context. Mm -hmm. So um, that really helped. I mean, my my um, my study at, at Carleton, um, especially with history has really helped me to be that person to fulfill this gap. Yeah. Um, I was very, very funny. I was very recently giving a presentation to, um, to the, Asia, you know, executive team and then the US executive team of a, of a very big luxurious brand about the one China policy, mm -hmm. why they have to, um, you know, respect the one China policy and what the historical backgrounds is behind the one China principle or one China mm -hmm. policy, why Chinese people or Chinese consumers would feel so strong about certain jokes or connotations mm -hmm. or or examples you know mispresented by the west so i was joking that oh wow my mom's tuition that she paid for my education at carlton for a history major right now is a finally is finally well paid off <laughs> your mom. well actually claire that's a it's fascinating that that great uh, presentation of the two perspectives 
but B, it also leads to my next question, which is tell us a little bit more about uh, the Achiever Circle. I know you and what how you've gotten to this point, but what is Achiever Circle? I know you're working with Portia on it, and um, it does, I think, step into that void you've just described, but give our listeners an overview of what it is. Definitely, definitely. Thank you. Well, um, the Achiever Circle, ultimately, we're actually making into a social enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, so it fits also your theme of the caring economy, because I, I, we all firmly believe, um, you know, you can do good and do well at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the mission of the Achiever Circle is to build and bridge global leadership, trust, um, arts and culture, and ultimately um, partnership between China's aspiring new elites and then the rest of the world. Because um, precisely because of what I just described um, earlier, you realize that first of all, China's economic development is unstoppable. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, no matter how much you wanted to deny it, it's, 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 it is what it is. It's mm-hmm. going to be an economic and political giant, no matter what. Mm-hmm. However, precisely because it's going to be so influential and powerful, you need the next generation of the Chinese leaders or the Chinese young generation to be more responsible, to be more knowledgeable, and to be more self-aware and also to be more mindful of the world Mm -hmm. you can't be you know it is you know if the world is dealing with the uncivilized china which is so powerful then that's going to end in a disaster Mm -hmm. and also the chinese young elites they are actually dying to get to know the world better Mm -hmm. however there has not been a very effective communications platform to bridge that gap um, the just like I said, a lot of the brands um, abroad, you know, especially in Europe and the United States, they are dying to, you know, acquire all the customers in China. However, they don't know how to because um, they do not really understand the Chinese customers at all. Mm-hmm. And these Chinese elites, of course, they're dying also to travel to some of the most, you know, exotic and exclusive places and to have some you know some events or experiences that can enrich their world values and you know and inspirations but they also did not really have the means or the tools to be connected to the right people because both worlds were so excluded from each other um it's it's you know so that's where i believe um, the Achiever Circle is going to uh, help break this, you know, break this dilemma mm-hmm. where our goal really is to um, leverage and mobilize all the networks that we've had, mm-hmm. um, you know, around us, all the resources, including you and, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, and, the, and the people around you and then also people around me, both in China and abroad, because you see that both parties want to get to know each other, but they just do not have the either the occasion or the right platform yeah. or the right means to get to know each other. And yeah. I believe this is for, um, for the world peace um, because um, if China's new elites, the new generation um, can be more mindful of what's going on, not just within China, but also abroad, mm-hmm. um, then they can be more actively engaged in conversations to resolve 
conflicts or to come up with solutions to world's problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this project is heavily um, incubated, supported, and invested by Porsche um, in Germany because um, they definitely have seen a huge need to uh, bridge this gap. So I'm very honored to uh, be able to work with Porsche and then also to be working with um, a lot of you know great friends of ours mm -hmm. um, because I think all of us at this point are hoping to make this China-US relations or the relations between China and the rest of the world more friendly and more progressive. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, we're honored to have Claire Du. She is the co-founder and the CEO of the Achievers Circle. Claire, if our listeners want to be in touch with you and seek your services or insight, what's the best way to find you? Uh, well, they can find you first. <laughs> um, yeah, I will also share um, my information maybe um, later with you. And then, um, but you are going to be part of the Achiever Circle. So, yeah. <laughs> you are on LinkedIn at a, as a minimum, right? I am on LinkedIn, yes. So, um, Claire, I also, you know, I, I was pretty much in mainland China on a quarterly basis these past five years before COVID. And one of the things that always struck me is just how genuinely young people want to better themselves and want to learn and are curious and hardworking. And I, I wonder if you share that view and how we help our colleagues understand that, because I think there are stereotypes of China being shallow, money hungry, not really interested in the world. And I've actually experienced the exact opposite. Yeah, I well, I think that's um, to be very honest. Um, that's a that's a kind of like a mutual effort that has to be done by both parties. Mm -hmm. First of all, uh, of course, the Chinese young people and the Chinese um, the Chinese side need to show and need to demonstrate that they're actually you know they're hoping to you know learn from the West and they they are very eager to learn. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think that they are doing better now. Um, by, of course, coming to the United States to study and then coming to tours to New York, to Silicon Valley, to invest and all that kinds of uh, activities, right? But at the same time, to be very honest, um, I think that the West needs to be more respectful as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, like, I think the West um, are, I think that the West sometimes is still holding a very arrogant um, attitude towards China um, and then, or a threatened attitude towards China. And I understand, I can understand why, because, you know, it is difficult to confront a completely different type of um, ideology, mm -hmm. um, value system. And, um, you know, China has its own voice on a lot of uh, key issues um, and a lot of um, kind of like a lot of key terms. However, I mean, differences, despite the differences, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, agreements or yeah. there's a lot of uh, similarities between China and then the rest of the world in terms of humanities and in terms of common goals. However, I do believe, um, you know, a lot of uh, policymakers or even a lot of the, you know, a lot of the key executives 
are were not paying enough attention or were not putting in enough efforts to actually you know comprehend china or to understand china in a more comprehensive way yeah. i mean just to be very honest i think china's chinese people's understanding of the world is much deeper and sophisticated than the rest of the world's understanding of china because all of us speak English, all of us have lived abroad, have, you know, have studied abroad, we're very familiar with a lot of the values and terms and, um, and cultures and stuff, but how many people, how many of those top executives actually have visited China, have lived in China for more than a week, have speaking have, have you know are speaking you know more than you know 10 yeah. words or sentences yeah. of chinese how many of them are able to read the news in china or to read you know what's really going on the social media in china everybody in china i mean at least in my circle we read you know new york times we read wall street journal we read twitter every you know every day that's also you know one of our ways of getting information we know what's going on but vice versa how many of them actually are spending the time and efforts to understand china and to appreciate or maybe not appreciate but at least to respect um you know chinese people's own way of thinking and why I mean, it's more about like why they would think in that way or why would they do things in that way? That was actually what I, what I, what I, what I, what I articulated to the executives of that luxury brands. And I say, hey, if you don't think China market is important, then, you know, then, yeah. then, then, then do whatever you want. But if you do want to make money in China, because China is your largest single market um, in the world at this point, and probably will only you know increase. Then you just have to respect the rules and regulations, and also okay. people's emotions as well as their histories and memories. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. um, you know, I mean, full disclosure for our listeners, but my husband Harlan, as you well know, is head of business development for the fashion division at JD.com. And you were instrumental in, in those introductions as well. Um, but he and I both will say regularly that you need to, anyone needs to have a, an informed view of China. It doesn't mean one has to go into business with China or ever visit there, but it is a force that will be with us for the rest of our lives. And it should be an informed view, even if that view is to not engage with China. But exactly. certain luxury space, as you know, in Harlan, that is the 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 golden opportunity now um so I, I hope through conversations like this that we will help people be more curious and less judgmental and try and find ways for example my two favorites i love to talk about regularly is wechat and TikTok. with wechat mm -hmm. one does not need to get on a plane and go to china one yeah. can engage with china one could even do in a business, in a school recruiting, could do a focus group with mainland Chinese kids who are actually here working, studying, and really understand what young Chinese think. Um, and then the second thing is with TikTok, it's Chinese owned and people wanna dismiss it as a, something to be fearful of, but I love how much joy it brings to people and how relatively safe it is. I mean, it's, it's I think, an example of China at its best.
So yeah. I wonder what you think about that. Definitely. I mean, um, these are definitely two major, well, one is owned by Tencent and one is owned by um, TikTok is owned by Bidance. Uh, for sure, these internet companies right now are, um, you know, we call them the super apps because they are pretty much dominating all of our work and lifetime. Um, and it's very different from the United States where your social, you know, media is, is divided into multiple apps. I know because in the States, it's, mm -hmm. you have the WhatsApp, you have, you have Snapchat, you have uh, Instagram, you have Facebook, you have a lot of these kinds of stuff, but in China, it's pretty much just combined either on WeChat or you know, or TikTok or Douyin in China. Um, well, I mean, they are definitely going to be you know hugely instrumental in terms of um, building communication. But at the same time, of course, that's really also one of the reasons that they also attracted a lot of uh, political attention. Mm -hmm. uh, from, you know, President Donald Trump, um, you know, last year about which about Tencent and, um, um, and, and Biden's TikTok. So I think these trends are not going to be stopped anytime, but really about how do we also balance out the political factors or the political concerns behind that, that's going to be a very big trick. Um, and it's going to be quite a bit of a hassle for Chinese companies to manage. Yeah, because they also have to understand how to play the rules in the United States or mm -hmm. in the international market, how to obey the rules, how to do compliance, how to secure data. But at the same time, they ultimately are Chinese companies so uh, who governs the data sovereignty? Who has the rights to, you know, to check the, 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 the user privacy? I mean, these are ultimately become very political issues and um, that will be, um, I think that will, you know, we'll have to leave it to the wisdom of, you know, those leaders as well as probably political leaders to figure out. Yeah, and we're seeing that now even with DD on uh, in the stock exchanges, right, and the regulations, yeah. and also even U.S. tech companies that I think rightfully need to be a little bit more regulated because of their exactly. Scale. Exactly. So, I'm mindful of the time here, uh, just so our listeners have a real sense of how you, who you are, and how you operate. I mean, share a little bit about your friendship with Jimmy Carter. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm a big fan of President Jimmy Carter. I met him for the first time in 2012 because when I was hosting a forum in China and he was a keynote speaker. Um, I was in tears just because um, without him, that China-US relations would not be, you know, diplomatic relations would not be established. And also he was the one that decided to, um, in agreement with Deng Xiaoping, to allow Chinese students to come to the United States to study. Mm -hmm. So this is the man that changed my life, you know, forever. And he is just um, unbelievably honest. And, you know, he, everything he does, I just felt like, oh my gosh, like, like how, how could somebody be so truthful and honest to what he believes in his life. So he really is 
a role model of mine. I think I use a lot of his principles in my, you know, in his actions to guide my own um, actions as well. And then he's very, um, you know, he's very faithful to, you know, to, to, to Christianity. And I remember I was reading his book. Uh, he said that everything, whenever time he was making a, he was making a decision, he would ask himself, you know, a couple of questions. First is that, is this the right thing to do? Second, uh, what would Jesus do? And third would be, um, did I do my best? Mm. Um, of course, because he's Christian. So, you know, so he would use Christianity, Jesus as his guiding principle. But I think that these three questions actually can be applied to every decision that we make, right? Mm. I mean, is that the right thing to do? What would my guidance or my role model do mm. if, you know, if I were him or her? And also, did I give it? Did I give it my best shots? Mm -hmm. So these three questions, you know, inspired from President Jimmy Carter really has become uh, my life guidance as well, guidelines. And then I, I, I miss coming back to the United States um, to every, cause every summer we would, a, a group of us will gather together and then uh, we'll have kind of like a private gathering um, with President Carter. So it's like a hundred families of ours. Mm -hmm. We celebrated his uh, 95th birthday two years ago. And then, oh, and by the way, he actually, his birthday is on October 1st, which is also the founding day of China. Okay. So he always jokes that um, this faith with China is predestined, you know, um, by, by whatever the universe, um, you know, universal power that is. So, I, I, I think he's the best ex-president. He definitely is a great man of honor and integrity. And um, I am, again, um, I am a beneficiary of his policies uh, to establish a stronger China-US relations. And um, to be very honest, his whole opinion on China-US was, because he knew that China would never become the United States. I think that was when he was, trying to establish a diplomatic relations, he said, China would never become the United States and don't expect China to become like the United States either. And we need a stronger China. That's what he said. We need a stronger China for the regional peace and for the international peace. And we should not be afraid of getting into a war, uh, you know, a competition with China because a stronger China will maintain, will help keep the world at, in check, but as you know, as unstable or ill-managed China will actually stir more instability in the region, and that was you know going to pose more threats to the world. So that is a bigger picture that I'm hoping you know that you know other politicians will get yeah. um, instead of focusing on um, the 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 minor you know. Uh, comp competitiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Claire Du, thank you so much for joining us today on the Caring Economy, folks. This was the co-founder and CEO and my friend, Claire Du, who is the CEO of Achiever Circle, uh, backed and seated and incubated by Porsche. Claire, yep. best of luck, and we look forward to following your success. Thank you so much, Toby. Thank you for inviting me.